Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. David Minkoff, who is a pioneer in natural medicine and really regarded as one of the, the best uh, natural medical physicians out there, at least in my view, and many others. <laughs> so he happens to practice out of the great state of Florida uh, on a different coast than me. He's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. But nevertheless, uh, he, he does an outstanding job. But we're going to dive deep into some of his best strategies to optimize your health and what he's learned from so many decades in the trenches of helping people improve their health and resolve some of the challenges that conventional medicine has been absolutely incapable of, of resolving. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, David. Thank you, Joe. I'm honored to be here and talk to you. Great. Well, thanks for your, uh, for uh, everything you've been doing. And I just noticed as I focus my attention on your face to the right of that is a wall full of medals because one of your other passions that I neglected to mention is that you are a avid athlete and I, and we can maybe, maybe we can start there. Uh, you know, what, what got you into that? And are you still competing and uh, congratulations and all those medals behind your head? Uh, thank you. Um, I was sort of a very okay athlete in high school um, in my first year of medical school, my dad had a near fatal heart attack. Wow. And it's sort of, I remember coming into the ICU and he's there and he's critical and he was only 54 years old and it really sort of woke me up and I thought I better get my fitness together. He had been a pretty good college athlete runner, but then he took up smoking and was very good smoker, you know, three packs a day. I never saw him without a cigarette. Uh, he was a business guy and he just loved to smoke. So he has this heart attack and I decided I should start running. And so I started doing just jogging and then I got into 5Ks and 10Ks. I ran five marathons. Uh, and then when I finished my uh, medical school, went to um, San Diego for my residency. I did medical school at University of Wisconsin. Um, and San Diego, Frank Shorter had just either won or came in oh, yeah. silver medal in the, yeah. in, in the, the marathon. Olympic marathon. That was 1976. And, 1976. Yeah. and this, there was a running boom in San Diego. And I got into the running boom and started running. And then in 1982, a friend of mine and I were watching the Ironman triathlon on TV. And two girls from San Diego uh, were winning the race. And Julie Moss was in front and she was about 100 yards before the finish line. And she collapsed. And we were watching it on Wide World of Sports, which, which was a, a show on ABC every Saturday afternoon. Uh, and they would show epic sports events. And you see her crawling and she's trying to stand up and she can't. And the second place girl goes past her, her name's Kathleen McCartney, and wins the race. 
And I'm sitting watching this with my best friend. And he said, and then we looked at each other and we said, we got to do this race. <laughs> so he said to me, uh, he has just started a financial services business and I had just started a medical practice. And he said, give me all your money and I'll invest it. And in five years, we'll both be rich and retired and we can train and do the Ironman triathlon. So we shook hands on that, except that night I couldn't sleep. And I thought, what if he lost all my money? Cause that had happened before. And um, I can't wait that long. And the next morning I joined the YMCA and started swimming. And I looked in the San Diego union newspaper and found a used 10 speed bicycle. This was February of 82. And I went online and I submitted an application for the uh, Kona Ironman Hawaii in October. And I went there and did the race. Wow. That you didn't even start at the bottom. You just went straight to the top. <laughs> well, I did one race in between, which was in San Diego. It was a dreary June day. I hadn't been in the ocean before. I was a pretty good swimmer, but the water was very cold. In 82, there was no wetsuit legal. And halfway through the swim, I got hypothermic. I got pulled out by the lifeguards. I sat in an ambulance. My body temperature was 92. Mm. And that was my first real race. Uh, but I'm, anyway, didn't dissuade me. I, I, I went and did the Ironman. So um, the last four or five miles were very difficult. In Hawaii, it's very hot. It's very windy. It's, it's a very hard venue for a race. And I decided that I was never gonna do this again. <laughs> That's a rational response. <laughs> yes. On the way home in the plane, there were about 30 guys and gals who had done the race. And so we spent the six hours from, from Kona to San Diego talking about our miseries. And by the end of the trip, I had decided I was gonna go back the next year because the race had beat me kind of mentally and physically, and I wasn't going to let that happen. And now we're 43 Ironmans later, uh, eight times at the World Championship in Hawaii, and I've got a, I've got an Ironman scheduled for September. And so it's become a – it's just I just love it. I, I love wow. the challenge. I, I know you don't like endurance exercise anymore, that you were a good marathoner, <laughs> uh, but I, I actually thrive on it. So – yeah, well, whatever works for you. That's right. a quite respectable commitment. 43. You've been doing it for four decades. Four decades. That's crazy. Yeah, this is my so, 40th season. That is crazy. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, didn't, didn't realize the extent of your history, but that's an interesting tangent, at least for me, because I'm passionate about exercise. And I personally believe, and I think there's a significant support for it, that exercise maybe one of the best interventions for anti-aging. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 it is hopeless unless you engage in a regular exercise program. You aren't, you aren't going to get anywhere fast. Right. So, yeah, I do too. Plus I think it, if you, if you enjoy it, it, it was really a good adjunct to me being a doctor because I could test things, test nutrition and test sleep and test, you know, now there's so many ways to sort of gauge you know, aura rings and glucose monitors and all this stuff and just learn a ton about my own physiology and that I can help other people. Cause I, I've worked with some, most of my practice is chronically ill people, but I have worked with some very high end athletes and I can really help them. Cause I understand, you know, what, 
what kind of met metabolism you need to do to be able to perform consistently at a high level. And so it's been a, you know, I've sort of been in the laboratory myself and that's, uh, that's been very helpful. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's dive into what you have learned for over 40 years in the trenches, helping to people recover from, from their chronic illnesses and failures with the conventional medical system. So, um, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and when did you get to Tampa, which is, or actually not Tampa, St. Petersburg, is it? Clearwater. Clearwater. Okay. Um, yeah. So they're all close together, <laughs> yeah. Tampa. So um, what was your journey to get from San Diego to, to uh, Clearwater? Well, in San Diego, I um, started as a rotating intern at University of California in San Diego. And because I, I didn't what, know what, what really was much. your residency, what was your residency? Well, I started, I, they had a rotating internship where you did four months, three months of peds, three months internal medicine, three months surgery, three months gynecology. And I started at that because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And the first three months I was in pediatrics and the chairman of the department there one day said to me, you know, you'd be a good pediatrician. <laughs> I said, okay. And then I switched it to do a three-year pediatric residency. Um, it was a very good place to be. Lou Gluck, who's the father of neonatology was there and their infectious disease department was incredible. And so I loved it. And then I was, uh, I was selected to be chief resident for my fourth year. And then I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I decided to do an infectious disease fellowship. So it was uh, supposed to be a pediatric infectious disease fellowship, but we, we spent a lot of time with the adult guys. And so it, I, I left there being very comfortable with uh, infectious disease, whether adult and pediatric. And I went into practice with a guy who, um, who had a combined hospital infectious disease practice and then general pediatric office. Um, so I was infection control officer at a big hospital and I also ran a neonatal intensive care unit. So I, I was sort of um, eclectic in my training. And in the early eighties in, in San Diego, there was a ton of people from the Hmong area in Southeast Asia. And so the, the, Infectious disease was very interesting, like tuberculosis and parasitic disease and lots of stuff. And there was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And mm -hmm. so we had all these guys in the hospital with these very complex infections. Nobody really knew what was going on. So it was very interesting and very stimulating. And I, I stayed on as an as a adjunct clinical professor at the university where I would attend a couple months a year for the residents and make rounds with them. And that was also fun. And I did that for 10 years. Um, I had a side job because I had three kids and um, I needed more money. And I started working emergency rooms. And my emergency room was about two hours from San Diego. It was in Brawley, California. So it's I'm in San Diego, it's a two hour drive. It's right on the border on the Eastern edge of California. And it's a border town, but the drug traffickers from uh, Mexico would come across and our emergency room was the spot where a lot of them landed if they got in trouble. And there was a, um, rec a recreational vehicle park close to there. So on a busy weekend, there'd be 70,000 people on four wheelers with lots of beer and they would end up in the emergency room. And my shift was Friday night at nine o'clock till Sunday morning at nine o'clock. 
The weekend. <laughs> the weekend. And it would be, I mean, I was doing, bur I, I, when I got there, I was very green, but there was a head nurse there was a, a, a green beret medic with two tours uh, in Southeast Asia. And he knew everything. And he would just stand next to me and say, here's where you put the burr hole. Here's how you do the chest tube. And Beautiful. I learned emergency medicine on the job from him because we were two hours from anywhere. And so that was that was interesting. And I did that till 1990. We then moved to Florida. I originally moved as sort of a six month sabbatical. I had a pediatric practice. We had three offices. We were busy. And we decided we'd like Florida better. And um, I got a job in an emergency room here um, until 2002. But in 1995, my wife, who's a registered nurse and was always sort of ahead of me in where, what we should do next, went to some lectures from Jeffrey Bland. Nah. <laughs> Jeffrey Bland is a genius pioneer in, in you know, nutritional biochemistry and medicine. And one day she dragged me to a lecture and I saw him lecture and my, my lights just went on. It was just like, holy smokes, this guy is smart and it makes sense. And I want to learn this. And so we started, we, so I started going to courses. I went to ACAM, learned how to do chelation um, in her nursing office. Uh, she, she owns a home healthcare nursing business. So she set up a little, uh, we set up a little uh, part-time office in one of the places. And I was still doing full-time emergency room, but we, we did the, but I would see people just for fun. And um, I think I met you the first time in Seattle at Dietrich Klinghardt's Dietrich, course. Because yeah. next door to my, to this nursing office, a, guy moved in who had on his marquee natural dentistry and one day I bumped into him and I asked him what is natural dentistry and he said well we believe as natural dentists that the mouth is actually part of the body <laughs> and then you wouldn't imagine that right and, and you wouldn't do anything in the mouth that you don't do in the body so why would you put mercury in you never put mercury in a wound. You know, mercury used to be in contact lens solutions and they took it out because it's poisonous. So he said, and, and like root canals, he said, where in medicine do you ever leave in dead infected tissue? Well, never. So we don't think that's a good idea. So I said, I need to learn more about this. This is interesting. And he said, well, you should go to Seattle there's a guy there named Dietrich Klinghardt, and he teaches doctors. And I went there, and I think I met you for the first time there, um, probably late 96, 97, somewhere in there. And then from there, I went to Dr. O'Meara in New York. I spent 175 hours in courses with him. He was at Columbia. He's a brilliant man. And then Thomas Rao, who's a Swiss doctor, came to the U.S. and did a couple-year course for handful of U.S. doctors in European biological medicine. And I started to get my education. Mm -hmm. And I started this practice. And we started to get pretty much right off the bat, very, very good results with people like chronic migraine headaches were going away and rheumatoid arthritis pain was going away. And as I got into it, I just 
like sought out the best people that I could find to help me learn how I could do this better. And that's been 25 years. And so I left the emergency room in 2002 and we've been just going gangbusters since then. And I, you know, you're one of my major mentors. I have to thank you because your newsletters and the interviews that you do and your books, you know, have really advanced my education and uh, helped me help, you know, thousands and thousands of people. We have a, we have a very big practice now. And, um, and it's, it's just so much fun because there is just many, many new ways to help people get better that actually solve the problem with their bodies. If you have a chronic illness, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, rheumatoid arthritis, Parkinson's disease, the repertoire of standard medicine is just not very good. They might help you with symptoms, which is fine for a while, but you are headed toward an endpoint, which isn't gonna be what you want. Uh, I talked to three smart doctors over the weekend, uh, saw your interviews on hyperbaric. We have seven hyperbaric chambers. We've been doing it for years. It's a wonderful treatment. And, uh, you know, I talked to two doctors that uh, uh, we've been doing methylene blue for about five years, but I talked to a couple other guys who had some other ideas on it. So, uh, and then I learned about intranasal NAD. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it's just the, 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 the field is exploding with with amazing people who are coming up with things that help people that have a downside that's practically zero. So thanks for sharing that journey. And it really reminds me that, uh, because I shared a similar journey (laughs) to to acquire my knowledge because there there is no school you go to. There's no postgraduate residency training to learn this stuff. You really have to hop, skip around and find the teachers and go to their courses in different states or countries like you did. So it, 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 it's a great testament to people like yourself who really are able to do the due diligence and, and make the journey and the efforts and, and achieve the results. You know, I, I had met, you mentioned Dr. Bland was the catalyst and I find that interesting. I had actually caught up with him in like 86 or 87 when I first met him and, uh, definitely was intrigued with his biochemistry, but there were so many other teachers beyond that, you know, that just really catalyzed my interest in learning. And at one point I neglected to mention when you mentioned uh, that you ran the race with uh, Frank Shorter, I think it was your first race. I think it was your first race or no, that was, that catalyzed your interest in triathlon. But my it, first, it, my first race was in 1976 and Frank Shorter was in that race. It was a, uh, I think it was a 20 kilometer race or yeah, 20 K. So about 12 miles. And, uh, of course he won the race. I'm pretty sure he did because he had just come off the silver medal and, uh, I wasn't anywhere close. I was like thousands back, but it was fun to be in the same race with him. Yeah. 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 Those are fun days, fun times. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, so thanks for sharing that journey, but I now what I want to jump into is the, uh, some of the highlights of what you've learned over these four, 40 years in the trenches, but actually pretty much 25 years, because the first, actually the question I had as you were sharing your story, it's in, I did not realize that you had infectious disease, pediatric infectious disease background. So I'm wondering if you were in doc, would you consider yourself indoctrinated into the vaccine approach? And if your position has changed any since that training and you've been in, been in the trenches and 
seen the damage that many of these vaccines can do? Um, well, as a pediatrician, uh, I was very much in favor mm-hmm. that it, they were very important. And but you are not just a pediatrician, you're a pediatric infectious disease specialist. <laughs> yes, yes. So when I came, so at the time I was pushing people to do it and, and, you know, I would end up in the emergency room seeing a kid who was four months old and he had a fever of 104 and he'd gotten his DPT shot that day. And, and, you know, what we were taught is, look, this is a reaction. He's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and what I've come to now is just very selective. I think if you were, if I was walking through a field and I was barefoot and I stepped on a rusty nail in the middle of a cow patch, I'd probably get a tetanus shot if I wasn't up to date, but I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very cautious now about this whole area because there's a lot of data that says that that children who get these things don't do better. They have more allergies, all this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm very careful. I'm not in a position now where I, you know, I'm dealing with children or vaccines. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant. It's not to say that I'm anti or that I would never consider it, but it really would depend on, you know, how good is it and what's the safety profile on it. And if it, and unfortunately, much of the safety profile isn't very good of a lot of stuff. I went through the Lyme vaccine thing. and It was like, holy cow, these guys, this was a bad, you know, this wasn't a good vaccine. And they pulled it smartly. They pulled it. So um, my approach really to, to this is that in virtually everybody that I see, they were fine until they weren't. You know, they had 40 years or 50 years where they went to work and they enjoyed their life and they enjoyed their family and now they can't do it. They've got pain or energy issues or they've got a diagnosis that, that, that has been labeled on them and they're not fine anymore and they're looking to get their life back. And so my idea on like, this isn't a genetic problem. You know, if I'm talking to the patient, I say, look, this isn't your genetics. There are causes for the things that you have. And if we look at this on a very sort of micro level, the basics of the body are single cells. And if single cells have the nutrition that they need and they're able to create energy from that nutrition and sunlight that they can then do their work and each cell has a job, and it is able to then detoxify itself of things that come in, and you have health, you have energy, vitality, and everything works. In a body now, we have about 100 trillion of these cells, and in a sick person, they're not working, and they're not working for basically two big reasons. There's things in those cells that shouldn't be there. So we're in an environment with 80,000 chemicals and God knows how much other stuff, which we breathe and eat and put on our skin and they get into our bodies and they poison these biochemical systems. And then virtually everybody that we see has a bad gut. They have parasites or bad bacteria or leaks or, you know, or, you know, their, their guts are bad and they don't absorb. And assuming that they have teeth, they can chew, and they've got stomach acid, and they've got pancreatic enzymes, which most people don't have, they don't absorb the food that they get. And so they have, so half the problem is things in the body that shouldn't be there. 
And the other half is things missing from the body that should be there. And if you can solve the problem with the individual patient of what's in you that we got to get out and what's not in you that we got to get in. And then sometimes in some cases, there's, there's sort of mechanical stuff. Like we need chiropractors or acupuncturists or massage therapists or things like this because there's a joint out of place or, you know, their cervical vertebrae are out of place or they, you know, sometimes they might even need surgical intervention. So it's, it's, but the big two are, are you're toxic and you're depleted. And so my approach to people then is what are those things? And then what is the priority or what is the order of dealing with those things? Because some years ago, I had a lady come into my office. Now she was the number one real estate broker in Tampa Bay. So she's very bright. She's very successful. She went to a practitioner who diagnosed her with heavy metal poisoning mm -hmm. and he gave her IV chelation. And she literally turned into a bag lady. Like, like she was brought to my office in a condition where she was wearing grandma dresses, carrying two large paper bags. She had earphones on playing religious music and she was just about completely out of it. And what happened was that she, he gave her um, nutrients and drugs to detox her, her, her heavy metal poisoning, her mercury and her lead, but her body was in no condition to get rid of it. And so as these things started to pull these substances out of places where they weren't so much bothering her, they circulated around, it got to her liver, her liver was already overloaded, it couldn't get rid of it, and these things ended up in her brain. And she was pretty much out of it. And it took two years to kind of backtrack this whole thing, get her gut okay, get her liver okay, start to you know, replenish her nutrients, tease out the metals that were in her brain to, where, to a point where she actually, she actually restored her, her health. So I think it's finding well, I, out what's needed was she put on IV DMPS? Probably. Well, not early is too way too. You mean early? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's what caused it, right? Because there's yeah. a lot of yeah. there was a lot of controversy about using DMPS IV. Yeah, I mean, when I first started DMPS, I went to the chelation course and did DMPS, and the patients were complaining about their kidneys. They were having back pain, like it was like it was hurting them. It was like, well, no, we're not going to do that. That that that's not the right thing. So I think the priority is find out what's wrong, and then work out a sequence where you can actually show improvement as they go along. They're not having big Herxheimer reactions. They're not feeling terrible. You know, you're not putting them in a condition worse than what they are because many of these people are pretty delicate and they need a very gentle touch to bring them along. And we have lots of tools to do it, but the I think the genius of it and the guys who do it the best are able to sort of walk this line where they can help people through it and not crash it. So do you have any favorite assessment tools to understand what this, the issues are? Because I think that's the challenge. You know, there's two components in medicine. One is diagnosis, the other is treatment. Right. Con, uh, conventional medicine is pretty good for the most part on the diagnosis. You know, I, I used to be very grateful when people came in to see me from Mayo Clinic or Northwestern University of Chicago, 
because they had a really good workup and I didn't have to do a lot of stuff and they ruled out all the wacky things that, you know, it could be and I didn't have to worry about the, 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 the zebras essentially. But their treatment, they were beyond miserable failures. They were just terrible. So, so you, the average person has seen 13 other doctors so that they're coming in with a whole diagnostic. Do you just rely on that or do you have your own favorite uh, tools to figure out what's going on? Well, I'm with you on that. I could say to the patient, hey, I'm, I'm really glad you went through that because you've had an MRI, you don't have a brain tumor, you know, you don't have, you don't have some crazy biochemical disease. And I don't have to worry about that because these guys are smart. They did their homework. They just didn't make the link of they couldn't find it. Therefore, you're crazy and you need Prozac. That's where it usually goes um, to, hey, I'm missing something. And, and I need to just educate myself or listen to guys like you or me and say, hey, why don't you look under this leaf? The leaf is there. Why don't you look under that leaf? So my standard thing is I do a very careful, you know, we have a 12-page form that they fill out. So I know their whole history and especially their dental history. And I do a very careful physical exam on every patient I see. And there's many patients that are surprised that they got an exam from a doctor. Because there are plenty <laughs> of doctors now that don't touch the patient. Yeah. So, you know, I look them up and down very carefully. And, um, and then I do this autonomic response testing. It's a, I've, ah, I've, changed, I've changed it a bit from what I learned. But I can, and, and maybe I just take a second here for, so people can, who aren't familiar with this is, you know, if you look at the system, at the body as a system, you say you have an individual cell, and that individual cell has in the neighborhood of 100,000 enzymatic reactions per second to stay alive. All part, okay? And then you have a body that has in the neighborhood of 50 or 100 trillion cells. And you take this problem to a computer guy. And you say, listen, I've got an individual unit that does 100,000 reactions per second, and I got 100 trillion of them. Design me a program and a hardware that we could handle all this stuff. And he'll look at you and his eyes will cross because there's no way that this could ever be done. Okay, it's impossible. Now, if you add to that this sort of standard model of neurology, like nerves conduct at 11 feet per second. So you put an impulse in the toe, and if the guy is, is uh, five feet five, so half of 11 feet, it's a half a second to the brain, the brain gets the message, and then the brain sends the message back to the toe to move or do something, and that's another half a second. So you got a second lag, and you're walking along, and your foot starts to slip in a hole, and if it was really a whole second up and a whole second back, you'd be on your face every time. If you tried to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, or be Tom Brady and get connect up a moving target that many yards away, it'd be impossible because you, you couldn't do it. So, and then you say to this computer guy, hey, this whole system has to fit in the size of the head, which is a brain, which is about three pounds. It's like impossible. So the whole model we have for neurology and nervous systems and what's happening is just off. It's a laser system, it's speed of light, you know, you get 100 trillion cells getting the communication virtually instantly. And so you start to fall and all your muscles change and you do this and do this so that you don't fall down. It's an impossible thing. So in the autonomic response testing, 
what we're doing is we're consulting with this system. I just tell patients, you have an operating system in you that's kind of like a computer. It receives all the information. And our bodies are basically antennas for electromagnetic communication. Like all sight is electromagnetic and sound is electromagnetic. And our nervous system can, re can get this information, it can process it, and it can react to it. And so all we're doing with autonomic response testing is putting challenge frequencies of mostly toxins and infections into the body to see what, what is triggering it. And the body is so sophisticated that it will give you sort of a readout of, here's my priority levels. Do the root canals first. Handle the cavitations. Oh, yes, there's a parasites there. There's autoimmune there. I've got chronic Epstein-Barr virus or herpes type 6 or, you know, and I get, I get on the first exam, a regular physical exam, the autonomic response testing, which then I get, okay, here's my big list. And I say to the patient, we're going to concentrate on these things. They said, well, what about my heavy metals? You for sure got them because everyone's got heavy metals, but not now because the body says, here's the priority list. And then we do, you know, I look at their blood and I can show them that, you know, you aren't psychologically ill. You know, you have, you know, you have bloods, it's all stacked up and you have organisms that are swimming around in it. You know, you can actually show the patient and say, hey, look, you feel bad because you are bad. And we have a list of items that we can deal with to help. And then the next step is I order wide panels of other labs that the other guys didn't do. So we're looking at environmental toxins and um, neurotransmitters and viral levels and all this stuff, um, um, uh, vitamin, mineral, amino acid levels. So we get big hormones, big panels of information. Now I've got a really good picture of here's what you're toxic with, here's what you're deficient in. And now I can design a program to walk you through that so that I can help you. And here in the clinic, we have all these tools where we can sort of facilitate that process. And I find, you know, if I had to go to a desert island, I wouldn't take my stethoscope necessarily because if, if I had to, I could put my ear up against the guy's back and hear they had pneumonia or they had an arrhythmia or something, not to discount those. Um, but the big tool is that. And what I encourage doctors to who are interested in this field is you got to learn, you've got to learn a way to dial into the autonomic nervous system, because if you're not, you really are going to be blindsided because you won't be able to help the person. And I find that over and over and over that you can, as a physician, you can spin your wheels, but if you don't have a way to get at this or look at this, and some people do it with electrodermal screening, some people do it with muscle testing, okay? But there, you've got to be able to tune into this if you're going to really help these patients because they're complicated and they're a little bit tricky. And this allows you to, a tool to be able to really dial into them and get them actually better. Okay, so now I know your secret sauce. Uh, but interestingly, I reached the same conclusion when I was practicing that you can get all the blood tests and lab tests in the world, but ultimately if you're not integrating some type of energetic analysis, you're gonna miss the boat big time. So, and that, we use a variety of different muscle testing techniques from uh, basically based out of the chiropractic world, like TBM and NET and some, and some other derivatives. Um, 
And it was enormously helpful, enormously. So I'm wondering with the ART, which is Dr. Klinghart's version of muscle testing, if you actually did the testing yourself and how long oh, ago, yeah. just curious. You mean, uh, do I do the testing on patients? For the ART, yeah. Because I think it can be pretty timely. It's at least a half hour to an hour for an extensive I, I've modified what I learned from him so that it actually is pretty quick. Five to 10 minutes, I can do the complete okay. exam so that I get what I wow. want. Of course, you're I, Mr. Efficiency. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm not relying on it as my only tool, but I want yeah, this yeah. priority. Like, what's the big ones? What are the yeah. big ones? Because then I don't have to wait for lab reports to get the patient started. A lot of people come from out of town and I can say, okay, here's where we're going. I can I can put them, you know, start them in the IV room or the other stuff because I've, I've got a good handle on it. And honestly, it's rarely wrong. Like if you're an experienced guy and you've done a lot of this, you know, the things that I find, they're actually there. Mm -hmm. And when you do lab tests to try to find, you know, is that actually there? Like, like last year, if the opening block of their autonomic nervous system is let's say root canal and I put them on the table and root canal is the thing that comes up last year. So I have a biological dentist three blocks from here and I just write them a prescription for a cone beam CT scan. And I send them over there to get the scan. And my dentist is really good. They don't see him. They don't do anything. They just go there. I order the scan. He does it. He's trained by the university of Florida to, 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 to read the scans. And I get this, I get a couple of days, I get the report from the scan back and it says root canal. I, there's an abscess visible there. So, you know, this is really a bad deal. And last year, out of 142 people that I saw that on the ART exam, there was a diagnosable condition with the teeth. Mm -hmm. On 137 of them, it was there. So as a diagnostic modality, 137 out of 142 is pretty darn good. And so I have a lot of confidence in it. And it really helps me to direct people so that they can you know, so that we can, we can get them figured out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. It's uh, the 3D cone beam CT is an amazing tool. You almost don't even, it's so good. <laughs> you almost don't need a report. You can just look at it and see it yourself. It's so obvious. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not yeah. rocket. A, a 2D black and white con conventional x-ray is, is not so easy, but the 3D cone beams are just phenomenally uh, useful. So congratulations on that. And I also wanted to comment on one thing you said earlier too, when you were describing your practice and you said about 85% of the people you see get better. That is a sign of a doctor with integrity and tells that someone tells the truth. Because in my experience, anyone who claims a higher rate is being, is deluded because no one gets those results because nothing is hundred percent. You could have incredible tools, but there's always some version derivative that just sneaks through. So uh, I'm, I'm just delighted to see that you affirm that. that yeah. And there's a compliant, you know, there's always a patient. I say, look, this is two way. It's it, I'm going to tell you what to do and you got to do it. <laughs> well, that's right. Compliance. Sure. Um, we do a, a medical symptom questionnaire at every visit on every patient. And that's very helpful. You know, you get a sick patient and the, and the symptom questionnaire goes up to 200. If they mark everything positive and, 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 you know, you get someone in with 179 or 175, these people are really sick. They have all systems affected. And then you see them two, you know, you see them six or eight weeks later, and it's gone from 179 down to 59. 
well, how are you doing? Well, geez, I'm doing way better, way better. And then you see them two months later and they're down to 19. And usually people that are under 25 or 20, they're, they're doing well. Like they're doing well. And I didn't, they're not coached on this. They, before the visit, they, they fill out this form and they gauge themselves on all these different organ systems. And I find that enormously helpful. If I see someone back and it hasn't changed, then I'm like full alert mode. Like, okay, I must've missed something. You know, we, we, I've got to go back through it, but, but by and large, they, they, they just go down and they get better and they're enormously grateful. I mean, it's um, so many of these people have, have been sort of through the ringer emotionally and psychologically of I'm, you know, so I know something's wrong with me, but no one, and especially my medical professionals and professionals, and sometimes the spouses too, they just get so sick of this, um, you know, dealing with people that this is a person that's had a, had a chronic illness, it's very difficult. And, um, but the key thing, and that, you know, I, I learned Darkfield from at, at, at my infectious disease fellowship. Uh, wow. wow. Abraham Browdy was the chairman of infectious disease at UC San Diego, the world famous infectious disease doctor. In fact, while I was there in my fellowship, he was asked by Cecil, which was the sort of the best internal medicine textbook, Cecil and Rhodes, to edit a, a new version of Cecil where there would be a second volume, which just did infectious disease. So he edited it and we were all fellows in the program and we got assigned chapters to write. So I wrote two chapters in the original Cecil infectious disease textbook. And we, so we would, we would have lab rounds with him every day and we would go to the lab and we'd look at all the blood cultures and we would look at all the gram stains and the sputum stains and the rest of it. And if someone was suspected of having tertiary syphilis, a, a spirochete disease, we would look at the dark field. And you could see the spirochetes swimming around. He said, that's the diagnosis. And I learned how to do that. And then uh, years later, when Thomas Rao came to the United States and, 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 uh, and had the course for doctors, well, he would do a dark field on every patient. And so I, would, I learned how to do it his way. And I find that it's very helpful because sick people have bad looking blood. And, and this isn't, you know, I'm not talking about people who take a weekend course and set up shop and try to tell people what's wrong with them based on their blood and that's their sole diagnostic thing. The, you know, the, I, that is problematical, but you have a medically trained person who's well-trained that this as a part of a physical exam and labs and ART, this can be sort of a very helpful and, and it's very helpful because you can, you know, this person is sort of in a limbo or in a dilemma of no one thinks anything was wrong with me because I look fine. And indeed, their physical examination is often fine. Like if I just went by their physical examination, their reflexes are fine and their heart sounds fine and their liver and kidney are fine. And she says, no one thinks anything's wrong with me, but I feel terrible. And we throw the blood up on there and we look at it and we got like, holy smokes, you know, there are biofilms all over and there's fibrin deposits and there's organisms. And it's like, honey, you are right. You aren't crazy. There is, you are sick and look at this blood. And then two months later, hey, look at this blood. This blood's looking better. And two months later, this blood is really looking normal. This looks good. And your symptom score is now 20. And you're telling me that you got your energy back and you're not having diarrhea anymore and stomach cramps and your sleep is improved and you're starting to exercise. And that's like a complete picture where, yeah, 
we are restoring healthy physiology to this person. And that's what health is. So is that your dark field behind you on the left? Yeah. That's what that sort of looked like. I just wasn't sure. Yeah, <laughs> All right. So that's, do you, do you distinguish uh, dark field from live cell microscopy? Which uh, Same thing. You can do live cell with, with, there's two sort of ways to do it. There's a phase contrast, which is also very interesting. And there's dark field. Um, I'm doing dark field, uh, but guys do phase contrast with microscopes. And it's also interesting. You can see lots of stuff. So I, I think that it's a, they're, they're, it's just helpful. You know, it's a tool. It's a medical tool, you know, and doctors that have more than one tool in their toolbox do better. You know, we have one tool. It's a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. Or if it's a knife, everything looks like it ought to be cut. Yeah, that's right. That's for darn sure. Or that's, if it's that's a prescription. probably a better analogy with surgeons for sure. Yeah. Or if it's a prescription pad and you got five minutes with the person or six minutes, you know, in the emergency room, we had six minutes. You know, it's it's you know, you got to come up with something quick to do the best you can. Yeah, but emergency medicine is the best application of conventional medicine. Yeah. Frequently yeah. five minutes is all you need. It's a gunshot wound or a twisted ankle or some type of acute trauma, which can be easily, not easily addressed, but at least assessed pretty quickly. Right. Figure Maybe I should have said it as a pediatrician. So you see 35 or 40 kids a day and you know you got that ear infection and there's the amoxicillin. I mean, that, that, was the, that was what the practice was. All right, so th thank you for reviewing your diagnostic strategy, which is uh, very interesting. And I think really crucial to have that type of tool. And I, it's in, I find it fascinating that you use the feedback from the patient, which is probably the single best barometer of their progress. So better than any test you can do, I would think, because it's ultimately it's how they're feeling and their, their ability to answer a 200 question survey is going to give you a really good clue. So uh, that's a great, it's a great way to monitor them for follow-up. So I, I wondered if you could, you have so many different modalities in your office and I've never been there. I plan on being there at some point because I want to get my VO2 max measured based on uh, Frank Schallenberger's uh, setup for mitochondrial. Actually, it's a mitochondrial assessment, I think, is what he uses. And I understand you have one there. So at some point, I'm going to make my way over on the other side of the state uh, and visit you. But some of the, the uh, modalities you have included the oxidative stress therapy. So you do hyperbaric, as you mentioned. It's, how many chambers do you have in your office? We have seven right now. We actually need more. Seven chambers. That's crazy. That is a, that's a major medical But they're, they're full from morning to night. I'm not, I'm not, I know I get it. It's a useful tool. Uh, it's phenomenal. So, but you've got, not only got seven chambers, you've got ozone as another oxidative therapy. You do chelation and I'm sure photobiomodulation and, and probably a dozen other interventions that I, I'm not even sure, sure of. So I'm wondering if you could outline what those are and then list us your favorites and the ones that if in your experience have been the most useful so that people who don't have access to someone like you in their, their location, although pretty much anyone could because they can fly in and many of your patients do, uh, that they could seek some of these treatment modalities out. I think the thing that changed things more than first recognition of, of dental stuff was, was his, is a game changer. Yes, but absolutely. the second biggest thing is in 2010, I think I went out to Frank Schallenberger's course and I did his course in ozone mm -hmm. and I had been doing um, prolotherapy before that 
Um, I had uh, I had learned it from uh, Dr. Hauser, uh, Ross Hauser. Um, in fact, we used to come to Southern Illinois because Ross donated a bunch of his time to um, people who didn't have any money. And we would fly into a church basement in Southern Illinois uh, for a whole weekend. And it was free care for anyone that had an acre of pain. And we would inject prolotherapy solution into theirs. And there was usually three of us there. And we would treat 600 people in a weekend to the point where I could hardly even push my thumb anymore. <laughs> You introduced me to um, to Todd uh, Ovacatus, you know, Ovacatus, and I went out there and my wife and I got the B cell treatment, the stem cell treatment, and we were so amazed by the results that I said, "You have to, you have to teach me how to do this." So he came up, he came down and taught us how to do it. Now we've done, we're doing tons of them, and it's a game changer again. You know, you put these. These young cells, you activate them and you put them back in the body and they they produce fantastic effects. I have gained seven pounds of lean body mass <laughs> since getting, and with really no change in my training. I do some strength training, um, but I haven't changed it. But my, I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's because That's of so the good to hear. Yeah, the yeah. B cell. I gained 30 pounds of lean muscle mass, uh, but yeah. I did have a significant change and I radically increased my protein intake. So this is probably the combination that did it. Yeah, B cells are just the bomb. I'm so glad you had no failure to implement. And I think we discussed that at the Biowiking event in Orlando in last year. Maybe yeah, was. well, you told yeah. me and Over. I saw the oh, video. You listen, yeah. Oh, I listen. I'm, I'm, I want the best. You obviously do. <laughs> uh, so I'm so overjoyed that you did that because I knew you would benefit from it and I'm glad you uh, followed through. So I just want to take a little aside. You mentioned Schallenberger was the person who got you into ozone therapy and, and, and that was in 2010. Well, a dozen years later, 2022, you and I are both will be speaking at his event in June in Denver. And we're going to put a link to that event here, because if you're watching this and you say, God, I wish I had a physician like Dr. Minkoff. Well, but I love my current doctor. Well, tell your current doctor to get his butt over to Dr. Schallenberger's because there's plenty of time to set up and you can you can get initiated into the ozone and also hear me and see Dr. Minkoff personally and, and get inspired and catalyzed to start the journey because it is a journey for everyone. So we're going to be there. It's, this is for professionals only. It's not for lay people. So you really need to be a registered professional to attend. But if you are, it's the opportunity of a lifetime if you're interested in this field. So, uh, yeah, we're both going to, I think you're first or I first, but we're, we're lecturing back to back on the same day. Yeah, Frank Schallenberger is, a, is an innovator, amazing innovator. And um, he's also, you know, another mentor for me. And his meetings are really good. So if you're a physician, um, chiropractor, naturopath, um, these, this meeting is a great meeting. People that he has coming are, are really good and you will learn a ton. And what you don't hear in the meeting, you'll listen, you know, you can learn in the lobby talking to people because it's a it's an open group and it's, you know, like my interest is that I want to create a healthy society. And um, and there's you know seven billion people on the planet, and we need millions and millions and millions of us to start to to get people thinking of health and then. I, I believe the only way to transform the system is by what people do and what people buy. 
And if people buy um, organic food, then the guys who make food will supply organic food. And if they buy Fritos and McDonald's, they'll buy that. And it's sort of a one person at a time thing. If we can change people's minds, we can get glyphosate out of our, out of our crops and we can get biodynamic farming and we can get you know, the new drugs are supplements and we can, we can transform the society because we, we, it's going down pretty fast. Yes, indeed. So um, part of ozone therapy, and you alluded to it earlier, was EBU or EBO2, for, uh, which is similar, but not the same. So I want you to discuss that a bit. The reason I got interested is that I have an energetic uh, analytical person who gave me guidance that this would, she actually found it first and had it done herself and said, this would be unbelievable to precede the V cells. So just personally curious, are you doing that like a day or two, maybe even three or four days before the V cells to create a healthier environment for them so they can nurture and grow well? And then uh, I'd like you to go into deep because there was, when I first found out about that last year, there were less than 10 clinics in the whole country that were doing this. And yours was one of them. Uh, I didn't have not seen you or anyone in your office for this, but I, I actually saw two clinicians in California because that's where Todd was. So I, uh, Dr. Todd to get the B-cell. So I thought, you know, I just got the treatments there and then went and got base B-cell therapy. So, um, so enlighten us about Ibu. Well, um, I heard about it from a doctor in Santa Monica on a blog. And I called him and said, uh, what about this? And he said, yeah, it's great. So we got one and um, we started using it. So EBU is, um, it, it stands for, for the, it, what it actually means, doesn't matter what it stands for, but it's a way to deliver oxygen and ozone to the body in a setup that's like dialysis. So one IV goes in one arm, it goes through a machine that has a pump so it can pull the, the blood out of the body. It goes through a system where the blood is exposed to oxygen in very high concentrations and ozone in low concentrations. And then it's recycled back to the body. Uh, some of the new machines also then are exposing that blood to ultraviolet light. And for about an hour, the blood circulates around through this machine and it's highly oxygenated. And um, it isn't really filtered like dialysis would be, but it's, but it's exposed to this high oxygen concentration. And I don't exactly understand how it happens, but there is a runoff sort of um, container mm -hmm. where if you're really bad and sick and toxic, you get a lot of this runoff collected in this container and sometimes it's foamy and yellow. Um, and so the sick person, our, our, our record is 2000 CCs oh, wow. of this foamy liquid in a real sick person. Okay. And I've done four of them and I'm like 175 to 200, which is mm -hmm. what healthy should be. Yeah. So I just did one last week. And clear. Uh, huh? no foam. And, and, and clear. clear. No, no foam, no yellowness, and clear. So I'm careful, you know, like my food is really careful. I'm I'm just like careful. 
because I know what kills people and I don't want to, you know, I want to make it as long as I can. So, um, so, and then you'll see there are 2000 and then the next one, they're 1500. And sometimes it's four treatments, sometimes it's six. Yeah, but you, you obviously you're going to have to have professional training and, and uh, just wanted to make a few comments on the EBU is actually short for extracorporeal, means outside the body, blood, oxygen, and ozone. And as you very well stated, it's not just ozone, even though this is an ozone generator, but the ozone generator is hooked up to an oxygen cylinder. So you're getting both. Actually, I think 95% of the treatment is oxygen and the rest is ozone. So uh, the, uh, and that filter that it goes through, a lot of people get confused. They think that's doing the magic, but it, it's only a catalyst for it because it creates a much larger surface area so that okay. you could actually expose much larger volumes of blood than the traditional ozone administration. And, and I think that's one of the, that's my guess is one of the reasons why it's so effective. So, but you've done both for a long time. And I'm wondering if you could share your experience because there's not many people who are able to, from their experience, actually compare them. And you've got one of the most longstanding experiences in the country. So I'd love to hear your opinion because many of the people have been doing it tell me that the, the, the traditional best treatment of ozone was a 10 pass. And this seems to be far superior. So I'm wondering what you're, you're seeing in your clinic. So what I found is that on a naive patient who's sick that has lots of symptoms, a high symptom score, I will, I will get them safely through using ozone first. So major autohemotherapy or UBBI where the volumes of ozone are much lower. Like, like on a sick person, I'll give them 50 cc's of, um, you know, 54 gamma ozone, just a little bit, and then make sure they don't have a reaction. And if they're okay, give them a hundred, give them 150, work them up to 250. They're stable on that and they're doing okay. Cause I don't want big Herx reactions. And they're going to get a lot of ozone. This machine's going to run for an hour and flush their blood with oxygen and ozone for that hour. And so once they're through usually eight or 10 of the regular ozone treatments, I will then graduate them to do it in EBU. And I think it's stronger. It's better. But again, better is they can, they can handle it. So if they can handle it, right. So you, gotta, yeah. you have to be careful and just don't throw someone on that initially. Or if you were to, you can dial back the amount of ozone that's being generated on that. Yeah. Lower the um, I don't, I, I love emergency medicine, but I don't want any of it in my clinic. <laughs> As a result of your treatments. <laughs> you know, you have an ambulance come here. Which not good. Not good for business. Not good. Okay. So, yeah. um, so it, it's maybe happened twice in 25 years. Like, like I, I want safety. Like do no harm. I want to do no harm. Uh, and for some Americans, that's hard. You know, you get a European and you say, well, you know, your testosterone is really low. And you say, well, we could add some testosterone to the mix. And the, the, the European says, well, well, why not? Can't you handle it by doing blah, blah, blah. I said, we could, but it might take six or 10 months. And they said, well, that's fine. But if you, if you have an American and say that to him, are you kidding me? No, I want it right now. So. So you had mentioned that in the patients you're treating recurrently, like at once every week, and you don't want to do EBU more than once a week. It's just your body won't be able to tolerate it. It's not, not necessary. But in, in, for those patients who are, I guess, living locally and seeing you for that, um, you were administering the 
NADIV. And I'm wondering if you had a chance to view my interview with Nicola Condon, who is a molecular biologist out of the UK and specializes in NAD. And after that, and being just loving NAD to death and reading a lot of the literature, it seemed pretty obvious to me that the best way to uh, increase NAD plus in the body is not the IVs or, or specifically in some of these supplements, but doing three things. And admittedly, some of your patients would not be able to do these three things, but you want to upregulate the uh, enzyme that is responsible for being the bottleneck of creating NAD, which is called NAMPT. And the three ways you do that is through calorie restriction, usually in the form of time-restricted eating, sort of a mini fast, exercising aggressively. And I know if, you're, if you've got a high score that in that 200 questionnaire that you're, you're not going to be able to exercise intensely. And then uh, sauna, which is another thing that I want to talk about. So if you do those three and you, you're activating that enzyme and you give your body the precursor, which is a low dose of niacinamide, not niacin, but niacinamide. Usually you can't find niacinamide tablets under 500 milligrams, but the dose that seems to do it is 50 milligrams, five zero, literally one-tenth of that. So you could buy the powder and measure it out with a really tiny teaspoon, like a 64th of a teaspoon, and do that three times a day. So you're giving them the raw material to create the NAPT. And if you upregulated that enzyme, you're able to do that. So I'm wondering if you saw that or played with that approach. I have it. I I um her her the supplement that she put together this yeah. time plus it's actually higher she's got like 250 milligrams in there um i anyway i i'm always a guinea pig so i i i take three in the morning and three at noon and i oh. I, found, <laughs> I like it and i put a lot of people with mitochondrial issues on it and i found that it was um that it's that it's helpful so I, it for me it's got to be simple too and yeah, yeah if yeah. i'm measuring nice it's <laughs> Yeah, you're measure, measuring mitochondrial function, so you can yeah. get a good clue. Yeah. yeah. So, so have you tried the niacinamide by itself, the low dose niacinamide? I haven't. Okay. I, you've got to play with that. And maybe, you know, we're going to be seeing each other in a few weeks if you can. I would probably play with yourself personally because, I mean, you can buy like a seven or four year supply of niacinamide powder for like 10 bucks. <laughs> you know, you can for your whole family or for even your clinic, you know, you could, you can give them enough niacinamide to try it. So it's pretty inexpensive, you know, and it, you know, most of the research on NAD is really related to the fact that they're giving these expensive precursors like NMN and these new ones, MIB uh, 626, which is coming out of Sinclair's lab uh, that are derivative of the NMN, but they're, they're cost a hundred, $200 a month. You know, it, it's not like, less than a quarter month to 25 cents. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, that would be good. So uh, let's go into some of the other therapies. I'm sure you are a big advocate of sauna. I don't know that you have sauna in your clinic, but I'm certain you recommend it. So maybe give us your experience with sauna as a therapeutic intervention. So terrific. We do the the, the whole cat. cat. Yeah. Now, so the, the every, whole cat also, you didn't mention, but it also has a huge PEMF device in there, which is the Hugo. So it's a, it's a dual based machine. Yes. And there's microcurrent in there and there's UV light in there. Uh, there's infrared in there and they breathe hundred percent oxygen while they're doing it. I mean, it's like 10 things at the same time. So it's very, um, it's very effective. Um, and then I recommend people do sauna at least three times a week. Um, so 
you know, so I do sauna three times a week. I, I think it's, um, it's very important and it's very helpful um, as a detox. And uh, the sauna I have has red lights in it. So I get red lights at the same time I'm getting the sauna. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, if you're doing a lot of things and you can, and you can sort of stack them, it, it's, it's easier. Um, yeah, for well, it, it increases the heat shock proteins, which refolds yeah. your proteins. And we all know that dementia is a, an epidemic. I have my thoughts as to what's contributing to it, but clearly in dementia, a lot of it has to do with the beta amyloid and, and the tau protein that get uh, accumulated and are able to, to function properly. And, and heat shock protein helps prevent that, so. Yeah. The um, the um, uh, Dane Goodenow stuff is very interesting on that with the with the plasmalogens. I, I don't know if you interviewed him or not, but no, I'm not, I'm not even familiar with him. I've oh, oh, oh! So you'll love this. Um, the book is called Breaking Alzheimer's. Hmm. Uh, Dane D A Y A N Goodenow. He's a lipid biochemist, and the introduction for this book was written by. Um, Dale Bredesen. No, uh, so you know it's a good endorsement, mm -hmm. and his biochemistry of lipids and of uh, plasmalogens is just fantastic, and I've learned a ton from him. Uh, and we do his test on everybody too. He's got a he's got a lab now that can measure levels of these things called plasmalogens. These are these are uh, very integral pieces of cell membranes, um, and um, and, and he's got some very nice data about, you know, people with APOE4 on a track mm -hmm. of memory loss, measuring their plasmalogens, they're low, and then half the group giving them these supplements back. So these are stabilized lipids, um, phospholipids, and then them not, them, them holding their, holding their own neurologically and not going downhill. It's a, it's a, he's done some, what I think is incredible work. Good. And you've seen some good results with it by implementing it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm using that on people too. The 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 one of the challenges in this practice is there's just too many good things to do. <laughs> well, that's where your uh, energetic assessment comes into play because you can yeah. prioritize and figure out which one. Because you're right. Without that, it's it's. I mean, there's literally many dozens of paths that you could take, and who's to know which is the best one to start with? Right. Yeah. So. Uh, so what are, well, actually, before we get that, uh, what are, have you looked at iron or you focus on iron at all? Because there is a substantial portion of research that, well, that supports people who donate blood regularly having a much lower risk of cardiovascular mortality. So we're talking two, three, four times a year. And obviously one of the best things that, I mean, it's not the, the altruistic benefits, although it could be a play a small role. The primary benefit we believe is that it radically lowers iron stores in the body. So I'm wondering if you look at that, measure it, monitor it, and uh, aggressively uh, implement uh, iron lowering strategy to facilitate improvement. Uh, yeah, I do. I, you probably know Robert Thompson. He's a, he's oh, yes. a physician yeah. up, up in Alaska. So he is just he calcium is just, lie, I think, wasn't it? Calcium lie, and then every, you know every chance he gets, he's promoting how how terrible iron is. And then it's killing everybody. And so I've paid attention to what he says. So uh, we measure ferrin, uh, ferritin, iron binding um, on yes. everybody. And if they're, you know, if their hemoglobins are high, we have them donate blood. Um, I, I think there's a fine line here because 
Iron is required for red yes. blood cell mass. It's required for mitochondrial function. Um, so I'm trying to, to not be too crazy on it either way. <laughs> um, because I've, sometimes I give people iron and they just feel better and, and they, you know, their hair stops falling out or it stops breaking off. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's a, it's, um, well, you, you, you know, I totally agree. In fact, the co-author of my book, Chris Sanobi, who is coming out with, um, linoleic acid, hopefully later this year. I mean, this book is finished. We just have to get it published and printed. Um, has the same issue that he appears to have iron deficiency and it resolved a lot of his chronic issues. But my belief is that it's actually an iron recycling problem. So that the, the retinol and the copper got to be integrated in a variety of other strategies to get that iron that's in the storage to come out and, and supply the body's needs. Cause you're right. They're, they're not having enough usable iron. And when you supplement it with, they clearly do better. No, you can't question that. But the issue is that doesn't address the stored iron in their body, which can continue to radically increase oxidative stress. So yeah. we, we, we got to talk about it in Denver. I'll go in, going deeper with it when we get out there. Okay. So, uh, all right. So that's good as you're looking at it. Robert Thompson's a good guy. Um, and I suspect that you are already or increasing people to radically reduce their seed oil consumption because you're, you're, you're a bright guy and you understand that. So, I mean, I am trying to get people off all packaged foods. Eat oh, yeah. <laughs> and almost all packaged food have linoleic acid in it. the seed yeah. oils so yeah. cheap yeah all right well good so what, what are some of your other favorite strategies like if you could shotgun it you know and you know see someone or recommend to someone over the phone where you don't have the luxury of having the lab having to fill out your questionnaire doing an art assessment and just tell them to do a few simple things in your experience experience what seems to work most best for the most number of people? I think, well, first thing is intervention is what are they eating? You know, I, I usually start people on some blend of, a, of an autoimmune paleo or keto diet, um, massively helps people. In six weeks, their gut problems iron out, their energy improves. So no grains, no dairy, except they can have butter. Um, uh, no beans, no nightshade vegetables. It's meat, fish, eggs, fruits, vegetables, nut, nuts, and seeds. And then I modify the carbohydrates based on, on, on how's their metabolic, you know, how's their metabolic health. Um, there are many people walking around that a piece of fruit will kick their blood sugar up 60 points. And those people have to be very careful about what they eat. Um, I'm one of those people. Like I have a, my average blood sugar, um, uh, on my on my monitor this morning for the last 24 hours was 92. Um, mm, that's a hemoglobin that's A1C. For you. That's pretty high for you. Well, it's under five for a for a hemoglobin A1C. It's pretty good. No, I so, know, but still, I mean, you would think someone who trains as much as you do would be closer into the high. No, state. but no, but I am very I am very glucose sensitive, and wow. I just have to really watch it. If I have a cup of if I have a papaya, my blood sugar will go up to 160. Really? Yes. What do you think that's due to? That's just. Uh, I need help with it. I don't know. I haven't figured out. I know. I just avoid it. Well, let's brainstorm on it when we get, when we get to Denver. Okay. You, we got to fix this thing because your body's telling you that's because with the amount of training you're doing, especially endurance training, I'm thinking you need closer to 200 grams a day of carbs. The yeah, carbs are unhealthy. They really aren't. But 
you know, maybe you have some genetic anomaly that requires you to go low carb. I mean, a lot of people do well on it, but not people who are competing typically with, with you know, long endurance events or cardio events. Uh, everyone in my family is obese and has diabetes and, and I, I'm not, but I really, I, it was never a problem before, but the last say three, four years, like I have to really watch it. Um, wow. I tore my hamstring two weeks ago. This is the other thing is I have a cortisol response that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I was on a bike. I was in San Diego. It, it was a fluke thing, but I tore my hamstring. And for two, it just went back to normal now. But for two weeks, my average blood sugar was running 120. Now I'm eating under yeah. 30 grams of carbs were you, a day. Were you in pain? Yeah. Yeah, pain, label increases. Yeah, and I had COVID last year for two weeks, same thing. I lost eight pounds. I was eating hardly anything. Uh, my blood sugar was like 120, 125 all day long. Didn't, didn't matter. So I, I have a, like a hyper response. Hmm. Um, and if I'm in a normal condition, I, I'm fine, you know, but I have to very restrict carbs. And I'm very keto adapted. I can train for hours with water sure. and electrolytes and I'm fine. Yeah. Um, but I would like to occasionally have uh, some berries or something like that. And oh, I, I just man. Have to <laughs> You've got to have some berries. So uh, how many grams of protein are you eating? A lot. A lot. Like 100, 120, 130. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's kind of like maybe a little bit. You're what, 5'10"? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, yeah, that's probably about right. Okay. So... Um, all right. Well, good. Well, it's kind of a, I'm just personal curious about that, but so you had mentioned that some of the best strategies, shotgun strategies would be the diet. So uh, what would you suggest after that? Well, I think they need to pay attention to sleep, you know, get a ring or get some device where you can track your sleep and get enough sleep. I always was five and a half hour guy. Uh, my whole life, I, had a night call every as a pediatrician every third night I would be in the hospital all night I learned and and like these these 36 hour emergency room shifts I could I could get along at five and a half hours a night and I thought I was fine and then I don't know three or four years ago whenever they came out I got an aura ring and my sleep score was running like 50s and I'm like well that's not good so then what I did is I decided okay I'm gonna I'm gonna modify I'm gonna force myself to go to bed so that I'm in bed at 10. And I, I get up at usually a little bit before five. Um, and, and then I was going to also modify my training so that I could, there's a, the readiness score on that thing that I could keep my readiness score above 80 and I get my sleep above 80. And I found that if I, if I force myself to get seven hours a night, sort of retrain myself, that then that I could do that. Um, and then I had to cut the training way back because if the score was low, I would take an easy day. And it's funny because that first summer, I just did this for three months and my readiness scores were really good and my um, sleep scores were really good, but my psychological state was worry because I was training about little more 60% of what I was used to. And I was worried that for races, I was gonna have trouble. And I raced five times that summer, four of those times I won my age group and one of the times I came in second. And that with less training and more sleep, um, my body was better. Yeah. Uh, 
No surprise. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah. The, you know, the coach doesn't know that if you have a coach and he's telling you to do stuff, but you don't have some way to get actual feedback on how your body's doing. Your um, he he doesn't know that, and he and and you'll do better if you pay attention to it. Yeah, you could. I think everyone needs over six hours of sleep, and a few can get by with six and a half or so if you're not pushing it. But when you really push it and put in a lot of hard work and endurance training, you know, and you can look at professional basketball players who really work out you know, ex extensively. I mean, th those guys, a lot of them need eight nine hours of sleep, eight or nine. Yeah. To, to function well so you know getting seven is may, may not even be enough but I'm, I'm really glad you honored your feedback the feedback your body was giving you and, and monitored and, and and it showed you that it was right because you improved your results which is great right right um so sleep and exercise sleep and exercise i think the environment too if you have people around you that think that that make you feel like you're not as good or you're a failure I think it's better to stay away from those people. You know, mm -hmm. real friends make you feel big and powerful and able, and non-friends make you feel the opposite. And that I think that's very important for people to to just sort of look at that and and um, take it into consideration because the sort of mental emotional part of life is huge. And health, uh, you can't have health if you're if you're all the time feeling terrible or feeling small or feeling unable or whatever that those things. So I think that's a that's a big part too. It's just like you want to clean up your food and you want to clean up your environment and and be with people who appreciate you and yeah. like what. Yeah. So if you what are your favorite books that you'd recommend people to get up to speed and some of the what you would consider the basic strategies for implementing lifestyle changes to optimize their health? I think one of the eye openers for me, I don't know if if you've read it or you've seen it. Um, you know, it's an engineer's viewpoint on, on, on the mind and how it works. You know, like if you could take an engineer and say, what is the sort of a scientific viewpoint on here's what memory is, here's what stress is, here's how it works, here's how it affects you. And you know this and I know this is that, you know, probably 80% of what walks into a doctor's office has some psycho, psychosomatic component to it. Um, from ulcers to high blood pressure, is um, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, written in 1950. It's an incredible sort of viewpoint to say, hey, you have a mind, but you also have this other mind, which is very powerful. And we all have one. And just the noticing of that, like, like why do I get headaches around so-and-so? Or why does this affect me this way? And it just gives you an insight into there is a mind which is on all the time. It never sleeps. It's there to protect you. And when things happen, it records it all so that later, if you're in a similar situation, you don't have to think you can just react. Mm -hmm. And it worked in the past and it protects you. And, and the, the, there's a brilliance of like, wow, that is really interesting. It, you know, it's not Freud and it's not Jung and it's not, you know, it's not anything you have to do anything with except, hey, here's an interesting model where there's actually axioms of like, here's how the rules are. Here's what the rules are for your own mind, just like E equals MC squared. 
you know, or, you know, that, that there, there are sort of dynamics of life, which are sort of have been discovered and that to the extent that you know them and you can use them, you can be more sort of in control of, of, of your life and your emotions. So that's, that's helped me. So you, uh, I'm wondering if you have a website or more details, if people were interested in seeing you and coming to your clinic, uh, you can give some information for that. Yeah, our clinic is called LifeWorks Wellness Center. So LifeWorksWellnessCenter.com um, is, a, is a place you can find me. Um, also have a uh, nutritional products company called Body Health. So BodyHealth.com, there's hundreds of videos on there on, on exercise, sport, uh, supplementation. Um, that's where I hang out most of the time. So, um, um, there's for the clinic, the, we are, we are accepting new patients and we, we see people. And, um, so people can call or get information and, and see if, uh, we're the right fit for them. Well, terrific. Well, I want to, anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think if people want, um, I wrote a book, it was an Amazon bestselling book called the search for the perfect protein. Uh, you can get it on the body health website free if you want to download it, or you can buy it on Amazon. There's a lot of information in there on health. And I have all my patients read it on your intestines and health and what to take and how it works. And I think many people have found that that that's helped them in sort of figuring out their own, their own health and, and how to be better. Terrific. Well, uh, I don't know how anyone could listen to this long conversation and come up with anything other than the impression that you have a very impressive, uh, established a very impressive collection of strategies to really help people. And I'm very impressed with your uh, commitment to learning your content. I mean, that's the key. There's so many of us who go to school to, and, and after, after they graduate medical school or finish their, their boards for their last residency, you know, and it, I mean, they pretty much stop learning or set for those less for those who are required to get recertification, but they just don't learn. They, you know, they do the bare minimum and they just do their job. And it's sad. I mean, that's the, to me, in my mind, that's experience. That's the majority of clinicians, but you certainly aren't in that camp. You're, you're a perpetual learner. You're driven to learn and, and continue to, to improve what you're doing. So congratulations for doing that and, and uh, really compiling success. A, a very successful clinic and helping so many people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.